kind of recap everything because I hate to just go to verse 19 cause it, and start talking about it because it would seem out of place a little bit. But you remember that the church at Laodicea was an extremely wealthy church. And um, they, they were wealthy because they were a medical capital, they were a banking capital, uh, they were a clothing capital. And because they were rich, uh, they decided, as it says in verse 17, I'm rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing. And um, Jesus, of course, is going to lower the boom on them. But the main problem that he had with them, as, as was mentioned earlier, was that he had looked at their works and he decided that they were neither cold nor hot. He wanted them to be cold or hot, but instead they were lukewarm and that caused him to vomit them out, made them sick to his stomach. But then he tells them what the remedy is. He says, after describing how that they were uh, worn out from labor and not realizing it, Miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He asked them, he counseled them to buy gold tried of fire. And we discussed that last week, how that's talking about they need to have their faith tried so they know what being a Christian is all about. They needed to have their robes washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, or in other words, depend upon him uh, so the shame of their nakedness would not appear. And they needed to anoint their eyes with eyesight that they may see. In other words, they needed to see themselves for who they really are. Then we got down to verse 19, and we got only halfway through it. For some reason, I can't remember what we, we started talking about. But he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And we, uh, we made the point that he is probably saying this because this is the only uh, church that uh, he says nothing good about. And I made the point that verse 19, that little section there, the first part of it is a direct quotation from uh, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12. But John, when he uses this quotation, or Jesus, he changes the word agape there in the original language to the word phileo, meaning brotherly love or a deep abiding love. And once again, he wants them to know that even though he spews them out of their mouth, even though he thinks they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, that he still loves them and still wants to have a close relationship. And that's the only reason why he is lowering the boom on them the way that he is. And then he, of course, finishes verse 19 by saying, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, what I think is interesting, the word for zealous right here in verse 19 is the exact same word that he uses in verse uh, 15 and 16 for the word hot. King James translates it zealous, but what he's actually saying is, I want you to be hot. Now, you remember when we first started talking about verse 15, how we thought it was kind of odd that Jesus said, I wish you were either cold or hot, and why would Jesus want anybody to be cold? And we talked about that. But the bottom line is, Jesus really doesn't want you to be cold. He wants you to be on fire for him. In fact, here in the text, he says, you need to be hot, and you need to repent. That's the only way you're going to be hot. Uh, Any questions or comments on that before we get to verse 20? All right. Now we come to verse 20, which is a very interesting verse because it ties in to everything that he has said and especially ties into verse 19. But he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and he will sup with me and he with me, as the way it's stated in the King James. Now when we first look at this verse, the first thing I want us to think about is has anybody ever heard this verse misapplied? 
A lot of people use this verse as a general invitation for anybody. It's a call to become a Christian, which in a sense you could use it that way. But why is it not a call to become a Christian? All right, the people he is talking to are already Christians. All right? Uh, This is an invitation for the church at uh, Laodicea. Uh, It's a special invitation. And what makes it special is the fact that he has already says, I love you. I love you. It's not too late. But make sure you don't miss the impact of what he's actually saying here. Look very carefully at the passage. And what is Jesus telling the people at Laodicea? By the very phrase that he is using here, what is he saying? All right. He's outside. He's no longer a part of them anymore. It has gotten so bad because of their lukewarmness, because of their self-sufficiency, they have shut Jesus out. He is really no longer a part of their lives. And that's a sad, sad thing. Think about that. Here is a church where they have services every Sunday, where they're involved probably in some nice charitable works because they have the money to spend on it. But Jesus is not there. He's not with them. And so he's got a very serious, they've got a very serious situation here. But yet you see the patience and you see the love of Jesus Christ because he, he is there standing outside the door. It paints a beautiful picture of, of Christ. He's patiently waiting at the door for the time that will say, Jesus, I want you to come back into my life. Now, there's a very famous painting that's been painted by this particular um, about this particular verse, a guy by the name of Holman Hunt painted it, and you've probably seen pictures of it, um, of Jesus standing outside the door, and there's always something that someone notices about the door. There's not one. Yeah. <laughs> there's not one. And so, and the implication by the painting, and also I think the implication by the verse is what? All right, you have to open the door and invite him in. And I think that's what you're going to say too. Um, Jesus, you know, never says, you're going to make me your Lord and Master. You have to make that decision. Uh, that's the way the gospel works. Grace is for all mankind. When Jesus died, he died for all. But we have to make the decision whether or not he's going to be in, in, in our hearts. Um, here were people that at one time in their lives, Jesus was a part of their lives. But because of their material prosperity, because of their self-sufficiency, um, Jesus no longer was a part of their life. He's outside their lives. In fact, look at the implication of the passage. He says, if you will uh, hear his voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, the idea is not just simply that you're going to have a meal with him, but as we're having a meal this Sunday, what's the purpose of that meal? Fellowship. In other words, we're going to have a relationship again. So once again, what is he telling the church? He's saying right now we don't have a relationship. Uh, You have a church. You have services. You're engaged in different kind of activities as far as the church is concerned. Uh, They may have had one of the best um, food pantries in the country. But yet Jesus wasn't in a relationship with them, and they weren't in a relationship uh, with him. 
And so the bottom line is Jesus says nothing good about this particular church, but yet at the same time, uh, he wants them to know how much he loves them. The reason why he has criticized them as much as he has, the things that he calls them is because uh, the ones he loves, he's going to rebuke and chasten, and we can understand that as parents. And he says, you need to get on fire again. You need to get hot again, and you're going to do this by repenting. And I'm just waiting for you to do this. I'm, it's like I'm standing outside the door just waiting for you to, to invite me back in. Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Then in verse 21, he puts this, this is put here for a reason. And see if we can think about what the reason is. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in, in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Now, what is he wanting them to think about? All right. They're living in the here and now. He wants them to think about the hereafter. All right, I want you to think about the parallel that's being made here. This is what, to me, is the most interesting thing about this verse. What did Jesus overcome? Well, he overcame being rejected by his own countrymen. He overcame a very unfair trial. He overcame being beaten spit upon, he overcame being crucified or put to death because of who he was. Now, look at the church at Laodicea. What do they need to overcome? Themselves. And as they overcome themselves, what are the things they're going to have to deal with? Okay. There's a story in the Bible about a young, a rich young ruler they had a discussion with Jesus one time. And um, this, this, good, this rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, uh, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you need to keep the law. You know, what does the law say? And the young man says, well, I've kept these from my youth. And then he says, well, there's just one thing you lack. You need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. <laughs> he couldn't do it. Riches can grab a hold of somebody and change them forever. And so what I want you to, to see what Jesus is saying here, he, he's saying, I know how hard this is going to be. I know how hard this is going to be for you to get over yourself. How hard it's going to be to start putting your trust in me instead of putting it in yourself and in your riches. But no matter how hard it is, I want you to think about what I overcame. I want you to think about what I gave up, though he doesn't mention it specifically in the text. What did Jesus leave to come to this earth? Heaven. He left the riches and glory of heaven and humbled himself to become a servant as a man and grew up in the time that he grew up talked about how the Jesus how the foxes have holes and the birds have nests but Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head it was not a wealthy man but he left the glories of heaven so that he could give us everything he gave us everything and he's asking them at, at, at uh, Laodicea that they need to give it up too now, once again, he's not, you don't see anywhere in the text where he tells them that they have to sell their stuff. He doesn't say they have to get out of the banking business or the clothing business or the medical business or whatnot. 
But what he wants them to do, the most important thing he wants them to do is to bring him back into their lives. And in order for that to happen, they're going to have to change their attitudes about the riches. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that the love of money is the root of all evil. I mean, that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And um, Jesus, of course, said it's easier for... Um, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And I say all these things because it needs to make us pause for a moment and go, hmm, because we have a lot of material things, and oftentimes we put more emphasis on our material things than we do on our spiritual things. But um, I can't miss the, the point that Jesus is making here when he says, you know, to him who overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Where's your riches? Are they... Are they here on this earth or are they up in heaven? Even as I overcame, you're going to sit down with my, sit down with my father, in, uh, father in, in his throne. In other words, your real riches need to be up in heaven. Any questions or comments? All right, and of course he finished this little section up with verse 22. Um, he that hath an ear, let him hear, but the Spirit saith unto the churches. And um, he does this on all the churches. And the point is, we all need to make a spiritual application, personal application, because of the fact that he's just not talking to the church as a whole. The church is comprised, comprised of members. And everything he says to the churches in general applies to the individual members. And it's very easy for us to think as a church and what they need to do, what they need to change, how they need to work on something but we need to understand that we're individual, individual members of the congregation and that everything he says applies to us also. All right, finally finished the church at Thessalonica. Any questions or comments about that church or any of the churches that we looked at? These seven churches. All right, here's something I want you to think about before we, we move on. We've studied three chapters of the book of Revelation. How many people think that so far has been easy to understand? I mean, we hadn't really talked about some very deep theological stuff here, have we? We basically began with talking about how that John saw a vision and, and had a description of Jesus Christ. It was obvious it was a vision of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a real picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ literally doesn't have seven stars in his hand um, and that type of thing. And we talked about how that, you know, we need to understand that there are symbols in the Bible and the purpose of the symbol is not to make us think so much about the details as it is to make us think about the point that's being made. Um, the reason why I ask that is, is because we need to understand and appreciate that as we start moving through the next couple of chapters, okay? From here on out, we're going to be seeing a lot of different visions, a lot of different symbols, and it's very easy to try to figure out, well, what's the details of all these things? What, is they, what do they mean? Well, I need to figure out what this one stone means. Well, no, that's not how Revelation works. Revelation works by showing us the big picture. Now, what did we understand from the very beginning of the book of Revelation as far as what is the whole book about? What's that? It's symbols, but what's the theme? What's, what's the thing that we want that, yes, Jeremy? All right, we will overcome. And why is that the thing? All right, they're going through all this persecution. In fact, you remember as we went through even looking at these churches, we discovered some churches 
They had done what already? They had already faced persecution. They already had some people die because of persecution. But what the most disheartening thing as you look at some of these churches is Jesus told some of the churches there's even worse persecution to come. All right? So we need to always keep that in mindset. Remember I told you at the very beginning of the class, we always need to look at the book of the Revelation through first century eyes or first century glasses. What did it mean to them? What would be the purpose of saying what he is saying? He has spent time right now talking about what was happening on the earth with those particular churches at that particular point in time. He was talking about the earthly. Well, now beginning in chapter 4 and basically through the rest of the book of Revelation, he's going to deal with the heavenly. In fact, um, in verse four, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven. In other words, now we're going to see behind the scenes what is going on. What we were looking at with these churches, even though there was some symbolism and some visions involved with it, basically we were seeing what was happening here on earth. What were the churches dealing with here on earth? They were dealing with some good things. They were dealing with some bad things. They were some dealing with persecution. Some were not dealing with persecution. But it's all the here and now. But now a door is going to be open, and we're going to see what's going on behind the scenes. What's going on in heaven? Well, this was all taking place here on this earth. What's going on behind the scenes that we can't see? I remember in Scott's class Sunday, we, we, uh, we talked about providence for just a little bit. Um, I believe in providence, that God is working behind the scenes, and this is what's going to be happening right here. John and Jesus are wanting to convince the first century church that no matter what happens, you need to understand that God is working behind the scenes. That, that something is going on that you're not aware of because you can't see it because it's supernatural. But now, John tells these people that he's writing this letter to, we're going to open the door and show you some of the stuff that's going on. Okay? Let me once again caution you and realize that as you read these things and you look at these visions and whatnot, not to get caught up in the particulars, but to emphasize the theme because that's what John wants us and Jesus wants us to do and what the first century church had to do was what was the theme? Where would the comfort be as far as what's happening here? And you notice that Verse uh, 21 of chapter 4 ends, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. This is the transitional verse to what we're going to be talking about for a couple of weeks now. He brought up the idea of the throne. And if you overcome, you'll be able to be with me at that throne. Okay? So... When you get to chapter 4 and chapter 5, and they really need to be looked at together because even though the whoever divided up the books and the books, I mean, into chapters and verses, um, why he decided to do it the way that he did, there is a change of theme. But basically, there's the same picture. Um, I can quote it, but somebody, somebody look up John 14, 1 and 2. I'd rather just somebody read it for the class so you'll have it in front of you. Okay, that's good. That's good enough. 
What does he say in the first one? He says, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, here are some things to be comforted with. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Folks, that is what chapter 4 and chapter 5 is about. Chapter 4 is going to give us a vision or, or a um, picture of God on his throne. Chapter 5 gives us a picture of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 is believe in God. Chapter 5 is believe also in me. Chapter 4, you have God on his throne. Chapter 5, you got Jesus as the lamb. Chapter 4 is the emphasis on the power of God. Chapter 5, the emphasis is on the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why these two chapters, chapter 4 and 5, are here is because when you get to chapter 6, and I mean this not in a profane way, but in a biblical way, in chapter 6, all hell is going to break loose. Okay? In chapter 6, John's going to start saying, listen, guys, there are some bad things about to happen to you. And so here at the very beginning, after he addresses the churches and he moves into the next part of the book of Revelation, he has got to set the stage. He has got to make sure they understand that Rome doesn't have the power, but God has the power. And no matter what Rome does to you, if you are in Jesus Christ and been redeemed by his blood, it does not matter. And so here at the very beginning... He wants to make sure that before he describes anything that's going to happen, as far as the persecution, as far as what Satan is doing, as far as what Rome is doing, as far as all these different things that they're going to see here later on in the book, he wants them to always remember two things, no matter what, that God is on his throne and Jesus died for you. God is on his throne is chapter 4. Jesus dying for them is in chapter 5. Now, you've heard me tell this story before, but for those of you who have been going to church here for a long time, but I still, it's always still so vivid in my mind. Um, Tony Reese, who was a, uh, the prison minister when I preached in Knoxville, Tennessee, we had a full-time prison ministry, and uh, his story was interesting. He was um, a drug dealer, a drug user, and he finally got arrested and was thrown into prison, and he realized that his uh, life wasn't going to get any better than the situation he was in, so he picked up a Bible and started reading it and started studying it, and then he started going to all the different devotionals and Bible studies that were going on in the prison, and um, he would look at his Bible, and he'd look at what the people were telling him, and he says, no, that's not in here. I don't see any of that, what you're saying. No, that's not what I'm reading. And so he kept going around to all the different Bible studies that different people had there, and he was never, ever happy. But then a guard one day who had heard about him came up to Tony, and he says, I think I know what you're looking for. And he introduced him to someone who was a member of the Church of Christ that started having Bible studies with him. Well, Tony, because of his good behavior, was released from prison. He ended up going to preaching school, became a minister of the gospel, um, so it happened he was in the same class as I was in, and then when I was hired at a particular church, and they happened to be looking for a new prison minister because the other one had just left to go to Memphis, I believe it was. I suggested him, and he became part of the work there. Well, I'll say all that to show you that we had, I had a close relationship with this man. And later on, after I moved away, and he moved off to take on another work, 
um, because of his drug use, uh, his liver failed. I mean, just totally failed. And, of course, he was waiting on a, a transplant. This was, of course, many years ago. And I don't know if you've ever known anybody who's had liver failure, but it, it affects your whole body. It makes your skin turn yellow. Um, it um, makes your eyes look awful. It even affects your speech. And, of course, I had a close relationship with him, and so I'd call and check on him. And um, he, he would, sometimes when he would try to talk to me, he couldn't talk to me because the, the poison had so taken over his body. And his wife, Velma, would say, he wants you to know, you can't understand, but he wants you to know that God is still on his throne. God is still on his throne. And whenever I read this particular book, this chapter in the, in the book of Revelation, it makes me think about Tony. Now, it's interesting, Tony got a liver transplant and became uh, very healthy. A little bit later, his kidneys failed on him, and he had to get a kidney transplant. And it so happened that a couple of years ago, I guess it was about 10 years ago, he moved to Charlotte and became the head chaplain over here at, um, uh, what's the, uh, not, I can't remember the name of the hospital now. It's not the one that's the same affiliation as here in Monroe, it's the other one in Charlotte. But anyway, he became the head chaplain there, and he was the head chaplain there. And one of the main things he did was go talk to parents of, and other relatives of kids and older people who were dying and trying to get them to donate their organs and because he was a testimony of, of the fact that he had received an uh, organ from somebody he didn't know, and it prolonged his life. Well, I guess it was about maybe four years ago, uh, Tony did die. He finally passed away. His organs all failed on him, and, and of course, that was because of the... He, intense drug use he used to do when he was a younger man. But I bring all that up to remind us that no matter what we go through in this life, no matter what we have to struggle with, and we don't struggle with anything like the first century church did, but we always need to be reminded that God is on his throne. He is always still in charge. No matter who is the president, no matter who is the emperor, uh, no matter what is happening in our country or in the rest of the world, God is still on his throne. God is still in charge. And that means something to us today. It meant a lot, of course, to Tony uh, back then. But think about what it means to these people who were living in the first century and were seeing their loved ones carted off to prison or seeing their loved ones put to death, uh, living a life of poverty because they couldn't buy food because they had been outcasts because of their religion. And um, they were already experiencing that. The rest of the book of Revelation deals with what more is to come. But God wants to make sure at the very, or John wants to make sure at the very beginning through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they don't lose uh, track of the fact that no matter what happens, there's two things you always need to remember. God is on his throne and Jesus died for you and he's going to save you. Any questions or comments before we start actually getting into chapter 4 here? All right, very good. We all do well on the test then. All right, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I want to make sure we um, uh, make sure that we uh, laid the groundwork before uh, we moved any further. It says, after this, I looked. And what he's talking about, the after this. In fact, what are some translations? They use a different phrase than after this, and I've forgotten what it is. What, what do you have? After these things... Okay, after these things. He's talking about 
after what has taken place here on this earth with these churches in an earthly sense, now it's going to move to a different area, okay? That's all that means, but sometimes people get hung up on that. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was with me were of a trumpet uh, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you these things which must be hereafter. All right, and as I've already said, um, John's going to get the opportunity now to get a peek behind the door, to be able to see things behind the scene. What is going on behind the scenes? What is something that we need to know about that's going on behind the scenes, not only to us that are living now, but especially to those who are living in the first century? Now, once again, as we go through what we're going to be reading here, don't get caught up um, in, in the visions and wanting to know every little detail. Remember what the overall theme that's going to be picturing in your mind. That's what I want you to do. What do you start picturing in your mind as we start reading these things? And it says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Now here's something that right at the very beginning we need to make sure we appreciate because this is an important aspect of Revelation. How many people think that God is sitting on a literal throne. We just, it just said John was called up in the spirit. We're dealing with the spiritual realm. God does not sit on a literal throne like we think of throne. In fact, the word for throne here is a transliterate word from the Greek thronos. And it can be translated throne, but actually the idea behind the word is the seat of authority. So we're seeing the place of authority here, Okay. And so we need to understand that as we start looking at other things in here, that these are not going to be literal things, but it's making a point. And the very first point that's made here, there's a throne up in heaven. There's a seat of authority up in heaven. That means there's somebody in charge in heaven. As John looks at this. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a, sard- and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, and in sight likened to an emerald. So we started to paint a picture, and there was one sitting on the throne, we, we see. And if you look at the person that looked like the throne, he looked like he was a stone of jasper and a, a, a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne, in sight likened to an emerald, which of course is green. Now, what is going on here? Why do, why do we have these pictures? What is, what is this idea of a jasper? And a, I don't even know what a sardine stone is. You can, I guess you could say a sardine stone. Is it in the shape of a sardine? If you start, um, I'm just curious, anybody have any different words for jasper or for sardine? Ruby, okay. All right, what is that? <laughs> Red like a ruby. All right. What do you think the point is that's being made here? Yes, Mike. Okay, there you go. All right, precious and something of great value. It doesn't matter if we know exactly why in the world do they pick a jasper for, you know. Um, what about the rainbow? Do you think that has any significance? Okay. Um, some translations have band, but I think it's, just, it's the same similar idea. Well, let me, let me go ahead. I heard somebody say something else. All right, well, what do you think of when you think of a rainbow? 
All right, God will never destroy the world in water. Okay. All right, that makes me think of two things. First of all, God's so powerful, he can destroy the world with water. Can he? And secondly, God keeps his promises. Now, you might look at that and see something totally different, but remember how I told you about the book of Revelation, how that it is something that when you read the different images here, it makes pictures in your mind. And what is the thing that brings you comfort? Well, we see, first of all, that whatever is on that throne is very precious. And we also see on the throne that there is this rainbow around the throne. And to me, that makes me think about that God is, has the power to do what he's able to do. And he, God keeps his promises. And I firmly believe that God will never destroy this world again with, with water like he did during the days of Noah. But I also firmly believe that God is going to keep his promise about this world ending, how that there's both a heaven and a hell, and I believe that God has the power to do that. And so, and remember what the emphasis in this particular chapter is on about God being on his throne and about his power. Because he has that power, notice what happens next in verse 4. And around about the throne were four and twenty seats, And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. All right, so look at what we've pictured so far. We see a throne, and the throne is very precious, whatever it is there with all the colors and everything. And around the throne there is 24 old men wearing white raiment, and they had upon their heads crowns of gold. And by the way, the crown of gold here in the Greek is Stephanos, or Stephanos, which means a crown of victory, not a ruling crown, not a diadem. Okay? So what do we what do we got going on there? Or fourteen. There were fourteen. So all right. But once again though, we're not dealing with literal, we're dealing with symbolic. And once again, we don't know for sure what's happening here, but John leaves it us, us to start thinking again. So we look and we see 24 elders, and some people say, as Mike says, that we're dealing with the 12 tribes of Israel, and we're dealing with the 12 apostles. Um, what, would, what would be any kind of symbolism or comfort that might come from that? Especially... Remember the theme of this chapter about the power of God. All right, all the leaders. Uh, it's possible, you got to give me a little bit more, possible for what? To overcome, all right, because these, because these 24 overcome. Okay, I see what you're driving at now, because they did overcome, and they were crowned with, with, with uh, gold crowns of victory. They overcame. Now, if you take it back, to the verse we read earlier in chapter 3, what did Jesus tell them would happen? That if they overcame, as he overcame, where would they sit? They would sit at the throne of God. What do we have a picture of now? People sitting at the, 12, or sitting at the, the throne of God. Um, but still this idea of 12 and 12, and like I said, somebody makes the argument, as Michael did, you can read commentators on this, they'll say, well, there are actually 14 apostles. There's Matthias and, of course, the apostle out of due season, Paul. So there was more than 12. But yet, as we think about the Old Testament and we think about the New Testament, 
as far as the people here on the earth, you've got the 12 tribes and you've got the 12 apostles. Now, is there any kind of connection that he's wanting us to think about with that image in our mind? As far as, now remember how we started? We had a throne, seat of authority. It's a precious thing, okay? It's a powerful thing. It's a thing that keeps its promises. Now you've got 24. Break that down into 12 apostles and 12 tribes of Israel. What might be the message there? Yes, Michael? All right. Absolutely. There's redemption in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's certainly a part of it. But have you ever thought about that the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament? That the God that we read about in the Old Testament that had the ability to part the Red Sea, that had the ability that when he just simply walked by Moses and Moses just got a glimpse of him, that his face shone so much that they had to put a veil over his face because nobody could talk to Moses because it would blind them. Just because he caught just a minute little part of, of God's glory. I think the picture that maybe would conjure up my mind if I was reading this, especially in the first century, the emphasis is no matter when you live, no matter what dispensation is, whether you were a Jew in the Old Testament or whether you were a Christian in the New Testament, God is still on his throne and he is still powerful. He had the power to save them under the, as Michael said, under the Old Testament, he had the power to save them under the New Testament. And so that's what is perhaps is going on here. And um, I'll tell you what I'm going um, to do. I'm going to stop here because for me to get into verse 5, we're going to run out of time, and I need to start, stop on time for a change. But um, at least we did get through with, with Laodicea tonight. That's a, quite the goal. But any questions or comments before we close? Yes, Mike? Absolutely. And that's the, and that's the entire theme of chapter 4. And the bottom line, as we get through chapter 4 here, you're going to discover that because of who God is and the power that he is, and he is the seat of authority here on this earth and in heaven, that what should we do to him? We should glorify him. We should worship him. And so the scene is going to change from what we're looking at right now to a a picture of worship. And a very good point about Ezekiel. And, of course, Isaiah 6 is another similar thing. All right, well, well, go ahead. That's, that's the Apostle Paul, and it's in, second, if I remember correctly, 2 Corinthians. Um, I can't remember exactly the verse right off the top of my head. Yeah. But basically, um, Paul is describing a time when he was called up into the third heaven, which is the heavenly realm. The Jews believed there were three heavens. They believed in the immediate heaven that we can see where the birds fly. The second heaven was the stars and the moon and that kind of thing. And then the third heaven is where God is. Does that help you out there? And he saw things there that he could not describe, that he was not allowed to talk about because either they were too, they couldn't figure out how to explain it or God prevented him from telling people what he saw. So we don't know. But all that was to bring up the idea that he had a thorn in his flesh. That set the stage for the thorn in the flesh. All right, we better stop there, folks. Thank you so much.